Hey, Creefall. This is Jeremy. This recording might sound a little bit different this week because it is. Uh, this is live from my basement. It feels very COVID-esque, uh, but in fact, we just had a snafu with the recording uh, for the sermon this week, and so we decided it would be a better idea to re-record the whole thing because uh, this series that we're in right now is we're really hoping to frame a lot of what uh, the philosophy of ministry and vision for the next couple of years uh, is going to look like. Um, and so we're excited about this series and wanted to make sure that we had the whole thing intact. So because of that, uh, you may hear some kids yelling and uh, doors slamming or whatever else may happen in the next 25 or so minutes. But um, bear with it and um, and hopefully we can still capture the heart of what this sermon and this passage uh, initially had to say to us. Um, so if, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago when we first kicked off this series, uh, I told a story about how my wife was telling me this giant news that I had no idea about. I was on a mission trip to Dubai. It went longer than expected. We fly back and I'm dog tired and jet lagged and everything. It's nine o'clock at night. All I want to do is go to bed. And then she hands me this card and I open it and it says, congratulations, we're pregnant. And that news changed everything for me was the point of that story before. And I want to, I want to reframe that in a particular way because there were three specific ways that that news changed everything for me. It changed first how I related to me. It, I was now a father. Uh, I was now a provider. I had uh, this new level of responsibility that I'd never had before. Second, it, it changed how I related to others. Like I could finally tell je dad jokes before I'd tell them and they'd just be stupid jokes. But now I could tell them and they'd be in the category of dad joke and be socially acceptable. Uh, I could share diaper-changing horror stories. I could spend hundreds of dollars on toys only for my kids to play with the box more than they played with the toys. It changed how I related to me. It changed how I related to others. And it changed how I related to the outside world. I never thought that I would be a PTA dad. I never thought that I would be known as DJ Jazzy Jeremy at these fundraising events that we would do at our elementary school in Lakeland. How I related to me, how I related to others, how I related to the world, it changed everything. And so we're in this series that the gospel, this good news of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus changes everything. And for the past three weeks, we've really been centered on, and it breaks down into three-week chunks. The past three weeks, we've really been focusing on how the gospel changes how I relate to me. It changes how I relate to my identity, who I actually am now. It changes, uh, it changes my heart. I now have fruit of the Spirit being born in me because of the work of the Spirit inside. And then uh, Dave just spoke last week on how the gospel changes my future, how my eternity is sure because my future is secure in Christ. And so if the gospel changes how I relate to me, then out of that, the gospel then also changes how I relate to others because of how I am now relating to God and myself. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be focused on how 
the gospel changes how I relate to others. And then finally, the last three weeks, how the gospel changes how I relate to the world. So today, the gospel specifically changes our purpose as we think about relating to others. Because everyone's asking this question, what is the purpose of life? And we all ask it in various ways. Philosophers, theologians, scholars, YouTubers, they've all tried to attempt answers at this question. So is it survival of the fittest is the purpose of life? Is it that maximum pleasure is the purpose of life? Or maybe maximum power is the purpose? Or, or maybe even maximum philanthropy and good being pumped back into the world? Is that the point? Even Christians have a variety of answers. If, if you were to ask uh, many different uh, believers the same question, they might give you different responses. Is life about being good? Is it about being right? Is it about being just? Is it about being fair? What if the purpose of life could be boiled down to four words? How could this change our vision for our life, our schedules, our hobbies, what we do, what we put our time towards, what job even we choose? Jesus is going to distill down the purpose of life here in four words. And so as I read, see if you can pick them out from Matthew 22 and Matthew 28. First, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him to question, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now jump to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Did you hear those four words? Love God. Love neighbor. The purpose of life. There it is. And so our outline today is going to be structured around this idea that there is a, there's a flow from the great commandment, love God and love neighbor, to the great commission, there is a flow, a workflow that our life can begin to catch inside that current. Because Jesus oriented his life around love for his father and for other people, bringing his work of salvation to bear on the world. And so the power of the spirit now, Jesus working inside of us now begins to orient us and give us that same momentum in our life that it did for Jesus. And so our, our three points as we kind of flow through this discussion today is going to be the great commandment, then the great contradiction, and then the great commission. So first, the great commandment, <clears throat> excuse me, the great commandment. 
we enter in, and this series is hard because we're jumping in and out of passages a lot, so it's hard to understand the context. We're jumping in in Matthew 22. The account here is the third of three attempts by various groups to stump Jesus in order to ultimately make him look dumb. And so they've already, one group, the Herodians had already done this. Then the Sadducees, they came at him and tried to do this in a different way. And now the Pharisees, sort of the chief teachers of the law of that day, are coming to him. And they're bringing a common argument that they would have intramurally between themselves. And it was this question that they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Like, there's a lot of them. In fact, they had 613 that were identified in Jewish law. 613 commands from the Lord to his people. That's a lot of commands to think through in a day. So if I'm focused on not breaking number 13 or number 26, I might be breaking number 302. And so they're asking Jesus this question, but their heart is not one of purity and love for God. Their heart is trying, again, to make him look dumb. And so this is a lawyer who is a Pharisee. And if he can't figure it out, then he thinks for sure that Jesus will look real dumb in front of all these people if we ask him. And so they pose this question to him. And his response is somewhat unsurprising, at least with the first phrase. He begins by quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. This is something that would have been recited daily by devout Jews. This is something that would have been very familiar to even just culturally Jewish people. And it's that phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's not so surprising. But then there's that and that Jesus goes on to say. And one more thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now this one he pulls out of not thin air, but out of a really obscure place in the middle of Leviticus. And he, he pulls it out in, and it's kind of interspersed in a whole bunch of other laws about things that are sort of unrelated. And then there's this little pocket that says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he pairs these two things together from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And they're standing there going, Jesus, we didn't ask you for two. We asked you for one and you gave us a great answer. And then you went and complicated things. Now, why would he begin with love? He doesn't begin with serve the Lord your God and others. He doesn't begin with sacrifice to the Lord your God and give to others. He doesn't begin with work very hard as unto the Lord and work very hard for others. No, he begins with love. Of all the things that he could have started with, why would he start here as the greatest thing that you can spend your life doing? 1 John 4.8 gives us a, a window into why Jesus may have said what he did. Because 1 John 4.8 identifies God is love. Now, we have to be clear, that doesn't mean that he is love in the sense that love is God. 
because God is way more than love. He is also holy and just and lovely and wonderful and creator and sustainer and redeemer and all of those things. But it is to say that a core descriptor of the character of God, a core key component to what makes God God is love. Why is that? Because it is in the very makeup of what makes God God. It is in the very character of his being because God is triune, Father, Son, Spirit, existing always, self-existing in a self-contained love, one for another, always has, always will. And so out of that kind of self-existent love, the entire world spins out. But it would make sense then if that is who God is by his very nature in relationship, one with another in and of himself, then he begins to open that up to us as well. And so he says, because I am love, so the predominant thing you should spend your life doing as ones who are created out of love is to love. Second question, if, if that's why he begins with love, the second question, because this has uh, all sorts of definitions today, what is love? Because is, is love just sort of a, a tingly feeling inside? Is love a, a quiver in my liver? Is love just maybe a following of my heart? C.S. Lewis helps us in, in the book Mere Christianity. Uh, he describes love like this. He says, Christian love either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. Now, I would add to that, it is an affair of the will in accordance with the word of God. It's not just an affair of the will wherever your whims may take you. It is an affair of the will, meaning it is a movement of yourself in the direction of someone else in accordance with the word of God. What would God have me do? for this person. And so all of this idea is kind of wrapped up when both the Shema and when Jesus brings this back around in the greatest commandment to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is a an all-encompassing every part of myself, uh, from my emotions to my thoughts, to my feelings, to my actions, every part of me. I'm, I'm loving and leveraging all of who I am in action, in will, towards another person. And so maybe Hathaway made it and had it right. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. It, maybe that little head bob to the right that many of us are familiar with from that Night at the Roxbury sketch had it right. That What is love? Love is in action. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me anymore. Secondly, if, if love is an action, something else that, that really helped to frame this, let me apply it for a minute. When Sarah and I were dating in college, we were involved with Campus Crusade uh, for Christ, a, a great college ministry, and they did a series on dating. Um, and they were addressing, you know, sort of the idea, especially in college, that many of us had or have uh, or are thinking about having, as you may get to college one day, the, the idea of finding the one person, the one that you're supposed to marry. And 
one of the most helpful things that they said essentially to debunk this idea was they said, I want you to understand something. David Robbins, standing up there, our campus leader, said, love is a choice. There is, there's no one person, there's no one who is going to affect you always with love towards that person. There's no one who your affections are always going to be fired towards and that you're always going to feel this deep well of love towards. You know, our feelings are going to come and go. They're going to wax and they're going to wane. But love, true love, chooses the other even when the feeling isn't there. Because love is a choice. Because love is an action. Because love is a verb. Ideally, though, the affection that you feel for someone would feed the action. Because to love the Lord your God with everything you are means that there is something and should be something, Lord willing, that is affecting you internally and drawing you in excitement and joy towards somebody else. But because we're upside down and backwards in so many ways, that's not always the case. And in fact, sometimes the action feeds the affection. Moving towards someone can actually fire our affection for them in a certain way that maybe wasn't even there before. So if affection or feeling of love towards your spouse or your friend or your girlfriend or boyfriend or your parents uh, or your children or even for God, if that is waning for you right now, if, if you're finding that lacking towards anyone in your life right now, then a way to apply this text is to move towards them in action, to move towards them, take a step of love towards somebody, and then trust that that step of love may fire an affection inside of you that wouldn't have been there otherwise. It may mean putting yourself in the way of God in prayer and scripture and whatever other devotional practice you might want to, even when you don't feel like it. And then trusting that that feeling will come as you put yourself in the way, moving in love towards him. Then what would it look like? What would it look like if love was your purpose for living? I mean, consider all of the ambiguous decisions that come at you throughout your day. Like, should I buy a dog? Should I buy a house? Should I take a job across the country? Should I watch TV? Should I exercise? Should I brush my teeth? There's a ton of complexity in each one of these decisions and in each decision that you even have made today. But at the root of each decision we make has a, is a motive. And that motive is either self or that motive is another. And so, for instance, it, it may be loving to get a dog if your kids really want one and they're excited and feel loved by having a family pet or it may be selfish to get a dog if your roommate is allergic. It all depends. Uh, like a question that gets asked a lot in my house when we're trying to get to the bottom of, you know, when we're locked in some, some kind of what is the right thing about, and we're, you know, my kids are in a fight about something or whatever the case may be. A question that we'll ask is, what does love look like? And that question distills every other thing we could talk about out of the way and distills down to what is the most important thing right now. It's love. Now, what does love look like? 
Now, if we begin to really grab hold of this idea and begin to believe that this is actually how it's best for us to live our lives, then a question that, that may very fairly come up in your mind is, but if my entire life is meant to be about loving somebody else, who's going to care for me? Like, who's going to love me? My needs, my desires, my dreams, my hopes, my just everyday agenda and getting things done that I have to get done. Who's going to care for those things? It's a fair question. First John 4, 8, I think, helps to solve some of that question in what happens just before what we indicated earlier that shows that the character of God is love and how that begins to work itself out in our actual lives. So 1 John 4, 8, just before the God is love section says this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Anyone who does not love, meaning that the author is tying together love with knowing God, that knowing God somehow draws love out of us or pushes love out of us. What's that about? What is that dynamic about? There's something in scripture to that word to know. Because to know in the Bible is not only to know stuff like you could pass on a test, but it's actually to, it's a more intimate word than that. Adam knew his wife Eve. Husbands know their wives. There is a intimate, close connection in this word to know. And so when John here is saying, that anyone who doesn't love does not know God, it's really saying this, that anyone who doesn't love has not been loved by God. Because to know him is to be loved by him. And then verse 10, just two verses later, in, in the same passage, goes on to say, and how do you know, though? Like, what's the proof that God loves you? What can I point to to say, because of that, I know that God loves me? Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This passage passage is saying that it is not our love for God that makes him love us. It is, it's actually that we don't love God is what fires his love for us. Our lack of love for him and others is what propels him towards us. Because naturally, we know this about ourselves, we don't love God. We don't naturally love other people very well. Like Dave discipled me so well in the past few months to say, me loves me, some me. Because when we think about our, when we wake up and the first thoughts in our mind and the agenda and the direction and the value and the momentum of our day is so typically centered around me, my thoughts, my needs, my dreams, where I'm headed. And anybody else who might get in my way during the day is just sort of collateral damage because I got my day to do. What does this mean? We break the single greatest commandment that Jesus says, spend your whole life doing this, and we can't make it for a day, let alone an hour, let alone a minute. That's why Jesus came. Because God so loved us that he sent Jesus to stand in our place. Because if we've broken the single greatest commandment, we should receive the single greatest punishment. 
But Jesus received that single greatest, greatest punishment for us, for our lack of love with his act of love, self-giving, self-dying for us. That is the invitation. That is the invitation this morning to even be reminded of the last three weeks of the sermon series and ask yourself those questions again. Have I been loved by God? Has the gospel changed, week one, my identity? Have I been so convinced of the love of God and my need for Jesus to save me from my lack of love that I am now a child of God, that I am loved by the owner of everything? He cares for me because he died for me. Have you been convinced of that? If you have, then your heart begins to change because the Holy Spirit's doing something in you. And as you're given the power to love, as the the Spirit of Jesus now lives and breathes inside of you, the fruits of the Spirit begin to come out of you, love and joy and peace and patience, because it's Jesus coming out of you. And lastly, if if the gospel has changed your identity, if the gospel has changed your heart, and it has, if it has secured your future, then you can live with abandon because your eternity is secure. Everything that you need is taken care of because God is caring for you, both in this life and in the one to come. And so you can take all the shackles off of your life, all the shoulds off of your life, and all the worries and cares off of your life because the one who designed and created me now is caring for me in every little moment. And so I can think about other people because his mind is full of me. God takes care of me so I can take care of somebody else. That's the movement that love in us begins to show as love through us. So then let's kind of wrap this up with this illustration. Until the 1500s, scientists you know, thought that the earth was the center of the solar system. Of course it would make sense because it's where we live. And the people studying all of the things around, of course, would put us on this little pale blue dot in this gigantic universe as the very center of it. Of course that would make sense to our minds. But then Nicholas Copernicus comes along and he, after doing, you know, whatever looking at the natural world and whatever calculations he was able to do in his understanding, he began to posit something different, believing that the earth was not the center of the universe, but in fact, the sun was. That instead of everything revolving around the earth, everything actually revolved around the sun. When he made that discovery, all of this, it caused a revolution in the scientific world called the Copernican Revolution. You may have read about it in science textbooks growing up. But what's incredible is after that, it unleashed all of these unknown questions could finally be answered. Isaac Newton's laws of gravity and motion are based on this. When when reality began to be set right, that everything does not revolve around us, but revolves around something other than us, everything fell into its place. The gospel, then, is our Copernican revolution. It is a decentering of the self as the center of the universe, and it is a centering, a recentering of God and others as the very middle of our rotation of life. And when we do, 
then our life's stability can begin to be rooted. Our life's gravity and motion begin to take their proper form because we know where we're headed. We know what the purpose of life is. We know where we're going. And so we can be stuck firmly on this earth knowing this is why I'm here. And then it begins to propel us forward in a life of love towards other people. All these things begin to come together. And the funny thing is that that is the thriving life. And that thriving life begins to thrive inside of us. Out of this love, if, if the great commandment is the sort of general principle by which we should live all of our life, then the great commission then in Matthew 28 is like the laser focus of the great commandment. Like what is the way of the way to love somebody? What would be more loving than to help others know God's love for them? And so Jesus utters these last words right before he ascends into heaven and leaves this with us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to absorb, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. I love you to the very end of the age. Make disciples in all of this string of verbs. Make disciples is the imperative. It's the command. It's the, now, how do I go about making disciples? How do I go about helping other people know God's love for them and grow in that love? Well, there's three ways. First is go. Going as the momentum of our life begins to be centered on God and others. We don't know where that journey is going to take us, but to leave our comfort zone and move into the life of somebody else is the life of someone who is making disciples. Second, to baptize. Notice that there is a baptism into the triune name, Father, Son, and Spirit. In a sense, baptism is a welcoming of others into the bear hug of love that the Trinity is. And so in a very simple way, maybe is just to say, that to make disciples requires going out of your comfort zone to other people who don't know the love of Jesus and then welcoming them in. Welcome them into your community. Welcome them into the church. Welcome them in on a Sunday morning. Welcome them into a small group. Finally, how do we make disciples? We go, we baptize, and then finally we teach. Teach them to do everything Jesus commanded. Well, boy, that sure is a long list of stuff. Thankfully, Jesus gave us the summary statement of that. What does it look like to teach to do everything Jesus command? Love. Teach others that they are loved and teach others to love. This is our life's work. This is our end game. This is our purpose for being alive. So I don't know. Should you get that dog? Should you take the job? Should you pursue the relationship? Here would be three things that you may be able to ask yourself as we go through the millions of decisions that make up every day to distill down to, is this getting after love for God and others? So in any decision, question one, is it loving as the Bible defines it? Is this whatever, fill in the blank, loving? Second, does it position you to make disciples? 
does this job, does this dog, does this relationship, whatever it is, does it position me in a way that I am being helped and spurred on towards making disciples? And finally, are you loved? Is this decision being made out of a settledness that before you've done anything, Jesus has moved towards you? And then before that verdict came down of guilty towards you, he stood in your way and has made all things right between you and God. And if those three things you answer yes to, then there's a good chance that you are operating in the direction of love for God and love for others. And as you do, as you center your life around him, uh, welcome. Welcome to the disciple-making adventure. And who knows where that will take you and who that will help you to cross paths with. But you can know that like the very last words of Jesus, he's with you. Let's go on that adventure together.